All right, well, back again for another Sunday. And again, welcome to everyone here. It's good to see you all again. And I think as most of you know, my wife, Angel, is pregnant with our first child due in early March. And we're, of course, very excited for this. We don't know the gender yet. We'll let you know when we know, which might be this Tuesday. But as you can imagine, Angel is very enthusiastic about picking out baby names. We've gone to Barnes & Noble a couple times looking through those like baby name books. You know, I think you know what I'm talking about. The, the books that have like every name under the sun. It's looking through names. And the one thing I do like about those books is that they contain the etymology or the meaning of names. They tell you where the name came from, what it means, what it, the background of the name is. It's kind of cool. Out of curiosity, I looked up my own name. Just, you know, like I'm wonder, wondering what my name meant. I think I remember learning when I was a kid what my name meant. But I re-looked it up. Both of my names, Eric and Swanson, it's I'm E-R-I-K, spelled with a K. They're both Scandinavian, or Swedish in particular. My dad is Swedish. And my first name I came to find means honorable ruler or peaceful ruler. I like that. I'm okay with that. I can live with that. Not because I think I'm destined to become the next world ruler, but I'm just happy that my name doesn't mean like a lazy bum or, or something like that. My last name, Swanson, as you can probably guess, means son of Swan, Swanson, literally, but Swan means servant. So it, re- it really denoted one who was a servant. And I like that too. Not too bad. I can live with both of those. It's a weird juxtaposition, a ruler, a servant. But anyway, I find that stuff interesting. Do you know the meaning of your own name? I think some of you might, but some of you might not. Here's the question. If you did know the meaning of your name, would it change you? Would it change the way you live? Would it change the way you act? If you found out that your name meant helper, would you try and help more people more often? I think that for some of you, knowing what your name meant might actually have that effect. And that's because we derive a lot of our identity from our names. Our names, they identify us, they mark us out as unique. And for some people, the meaning of their names even serves to define them. You see this a lot with corporations. Corporations these days, they carefully and purposefully select names to define them and their product. And they want names that reflect who they are and what they're all about. Like, I'll give you some examples. Nike. We all know Nike, number one shoe company in the world. And some of you may know the word Nike, the name Nike, they took it from the Greek goddess of victory, Nike. And she was a divine charioteer. She flew around the battlefield awarding victory and fame and glory. And, and likewise, the company, Nike, wants to be associated with victory. If you buy their shoes, their clothes, whatever, well, then maybe you will have the victory. Or another shoe company, Reebok. This one comes from an Afrikaans, that's South African, spelling of Reebok, which is a type of African gazelle. And so being one of the swiftest animals on the planet, they want to be associated with speed. If you buy their shoe, you'll, you'll be the fastest. Here, I'll give you a few others. 7-Eleven. 7-Eleven got its name back in 1946 when they took the name 7-Eleven to, to express their new business operating hours, which I'm sure you can guess was from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. And back then, I guess that must have been a big deal. That must have been pretty radical. But 7-Eleven. The website Amazon.com was named after the Amazon River, the most voluminous river in the world. And the founder chose that name because he wanted online sales to likewise become the greatest in the world. And, well, he was right. I guess it is now. 
Apple. You know, we all know the corporation Apple, Steve Jobs, who actually recently just passed away. He, when he was a child, worked at an apple orchard. But according to some sources, he chose the name Apple because he wanted a name that was lively and fresh as opposed to the cold, disenchanted or unapproachable, complicated names from other tech companies like IBM, Integrated Business Machines. He wanted something that was fresh. Well, so he chose Apple. Starbucks was named after the first mate in the book, Moby Dick. QVC means quality, value, and convenience. And there's Twitter. Some of you may know this new thing called Twitter. That The founders of this company, they're just looking through the dictionary to try and find a name for their company. They stumbled upon Twitter, which means a short burst of inconsequential information. And they said that's literally what their product was. So they chose a name. And Twitter also means, by the way, Chirps from birds, so that's why the whole bird imagery. Anyway, so we see both individually, corporately, names, they identify us. And at times they even define us, who we are, what we're about. They give us our unique identity in the world. And furthermore, they help form that identity. They set us apart. This is true for our individual names. This is true for corporate names. And as you can imagine, it's true for church names, including our very own Berean Bible Church. As I think most of you know, I'm the new pastor here. It's my second official Sunday. And I figured what I would do before we launch into a new book study, which will take us through the new year, I would take one more Sunday and give almost a second inaugural message of sorts, sort of. And this time talk about our identity as a church. Last week, I preached an entire message on the gospel, which which gives us our identity as Christians. But for this week, I want us to think through our our corporate identity, our identity as a church. And to do this, I want to use our name, Berean Bible Church. And so for this morning, I'm going to do something actually a little unique, and that is I'm going to exposit our name, Berean Bible Church. I want to, from Scripture, of course, expose to you the meaning and the significance of our very own name so that we all might have a better understanding of who we are as a church, so that we all might draw closer together in unity through our common identity, and so that we all might be firmly committed to that which defines us. So like I said, it may be a little unorthodox, unusual, but I think it's going to be a profitable study. And So for all those reasons just mentioned, I just... Plain and simple, I want to give you the meaning of Berean Bible Church. The meaning of Berean Bible Church. So we start firstly with, of course, Berean. Number one, Berean. Our first name is also the most unique, Berean. I think to those less familiar with the Bible, this word Berean brings either confusion or maybe some curiosity. Most non-Christians have no idea who or what a Berean is. But if, if we are going to be called the Berean Bible Church, then I think of all people, we certainly have to know what Berean is. We, we need to be well-versed in the meaning and the significance of this word Berean. So to find more about this word Berean, we have to turn to Acts 17. So why don't you do that? Acts chapter 17. A little warm, so jacket's coming up. Acts chapter 17. 
This word only shows up a few times in Scripture, and both are in Acts chapter 17. And here in, in this chapter, we find Paul. He's on his second missionary journey, and he just crossed the sea into Europe. So this marks the first entrance of the gospel into Europe ever. He's making his way west along the region called Macedonia, the Macedonian region. Let's start at verse 1 just to get the context. Acts 17, verse 1. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And saying, this Jesus, who I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Here we get a little bit of a glimpse into Paul's evangelistic custom. As he would go traveling around from city to city, he took the gospel, as Romans mentions, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. So this explains why he, he pulled up into a city. He said, where's the synagogue? First things first, show me the local synagogue. And he went there to go minister to the Jews. Because Christ wanted him to take the gospel first to the Jews, but then second to the Greek. So it says that here he spent three Sabbaths, or three Saturdays or Fridays at sundown to Saturday at sundown. Essentially three Saturdays reasoning with these Jews from the scriptures. Remember when Christ was on the road to Emmaus, or he, he met those two guys on the road to Emmaus, and he explained to them, the things in scripture that were speaking about him. And he opened their eyes to what the Old Testament said about him. That's what Paul is doing with these Jews. He's taking them through those key passages in the Old Testament that speak of this Messiah, this Jesus, and how the fact that this Messiah had to die and rise, rise again. Here at this verse, it says Paul was explaining and giving evidence, as verse 3 says, that Jesus is the Christ, your Christ is used as a, a technical term. Christ, it means the Messiah. Christ literally means the anointed one, which to the Jews, that was a reference to their Messiah. The Messiah was the anointed one of God. And it was critical, obviously, that these Jews accept Jesus as the true Messiah. But you have to remember one thing. The cross to the Jews was a huge stumbling block. That's what they just couldn't get over. The cross. They believed in the Messiah. Some of them even believed in two Messiahs. But they, they had hope in this figure that the Messiah that was clearly promised in the Old Testament. But they couldn't comprehend how the Messiah could die. They couldn't get that. How could their Savior conquer Rome and then usher in the kingdom if he's dead? That, they, that didn't compute with them. They just couldn't get past it. They couldn't understand. It was their stumbling block. To us now, it's obvious. We, we get it. But you have to remember, they were approaching Scripture with a blindfold on. They didn't have eyes to see. It wasn't open to them to see. So Paul was reasoning with them from Scripture, hoping to, by God's grace, lift that blindfold, remove that blindfold, and show them, through God intervening, the truth of Christ, the Messiah. Look at verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks, and a number of the leading women. So here's some good news. That some of these Jews 
were persuaded and they did believe. God's grace intervened in their lives and the veil was lifted. The veil was removed, as Paul would later go on to say in 2 Corinthians 3. And they were given eyes to see that, that Christ truly was their Messiah. Luke also mentions that a large number of God-fearing Greeks were saved that day, as well as some of the leading women. And here it's just showing how the gospel is penetrating beyond gender, beyond ethnicity. It's just going to everybody. There's, there's no limits. There's no exceptions. No one is kept back from the gospel at this point. Just as a side note, you have this group, the God-fearing Greeks. They're, they're going to show up later. An interesting group of people back then. You know, in many of these ancient cities, there were these monotheistic Greeks. As you know, some, most of the ancient Greeks were polytheistic. They had many gods. But there were some who were monotheistic. They just believed in one god. And oftentimes, they, they, they clung to the god of the Jews, who was a strong, obviously, monotheistic god. That's how they saw him. And these Jews, they allowed the Greeks to come to the synagogue and to, to basically show up. You had to, they, had, they made them sit in the back. They kept them at arm's length. But they let them stick around. And, of course, they accepted their money. But they, they, were, they tolerated these God-fearing Greeks, is what they called them, or Gentiles. That being said, though, sitting in the back of the synagogue, they, they became acquainted with the Old Testament over time. They became acquainted with this Messiah figure. So much so that by the time Paul shows up, or other missionaries, most times it's these Greeks who are receptive to the gospel and willing to, to follow Christ more so than the actual Jews. They, they get it. God opened their eyes much sooner than the rest of the Jews, and that's certainly true in Thessalonica. Let's keep reading verse 5. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason... They were seeking to bring them out to the people. This guy Jason, we, we don't really know anything about him, who he really was. He's simply the person that Paul and Silas seem to be staying with. He may have been one of the new converts. Verse 6, When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world, like that, have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the, to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. So what's going on here is that these Jews, the, the non-believing or the wicked ones, they are, they're using the same tactic on Paul that other Jews used on Jesus. And that, that is, they're accusing him of opposing Caesar. They're saying, well, they're going after another king. And, of course, they knew that by doing that, that's definitely going to get the city authorities involved. So, evidently, it appears Paul, Silas were arrested and jailed. And they were held for some time until Jason and some others apparently posted bail or gave a pledge. And most likely that came along with it, the fact that, hey, we'll, we'll release you from jail, but you've got to leave the city. And so then we come to verse 10. The brethren immediately then sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. 
So to prevent further trouble in Thessalonica, the believers, they send Paul and Silas away. And technically, Timothy's with them. He's not mentioned here in this verse, but he's with them. He's gonna, he popped up before. He's going to show up later. And they send them further west to Berea. Berea was about 50 miles west or southwest of Thessalonica. It's about a three days journey. It would have taken them about three days to get there. And it was a good-sized city. And what do they do when they get there? Take a, take a nap, take a little break, take a, a breather. It says immediately they went into the synagogue of the Jews. They got right back to work. They said, well, new city, where's the synagogue? We're going to go. And we're going to continue to minister to the Jews, God's people. But there is a, a difference with these Jews in Berea. There's something different about them. They had a response they hadn't really encountered before. Well, what was that response? Well, look at verse 11. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So here it is. Here's our main verse. This is the verse we've been working up to or building our way to. Verse 11 here. This is why we are Berean Bible Church. And many other churches have the word Berean in their name. You know, you, you look around town, you don't see too many Thessalonian Bible churches. They weren't that great. But there's something about these Bereans that they left an example behind, worthy to follow, worthy to name a church after. And so what, what was so special about them? Well, let me point out three aspects of these Berean believers just to Give you some structure. Three aspects of these Berean believers. First, notice their character. Their character. Verse 11, Luke says that these Jews were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. More noble-minded. This word for noble-minded in the Greek originally meant being of a noble birth or high-born. Referred to a superior breed, but it came to have a more general connotation for those noble in character, upright, honorable. And so instead of being superior in breed, these Jews in Berea were superior in character. So what made them that way? What made them so noble, of such noble character? Well, secondly, notice their craving. Their craving. For it goes on to say, for they receive the word with great eagerness. They, they had a craving for it, for the word. They desired it. They, they wanted it. They had an appetite for it. And Paul was feeding them. Remember, Paul, he wasn't just making stuff up. He was taking them through the Old Testament. And so in a reverence for God's word, they were open to learning. They, they accepted it. They received it. They welcomed it, learning something new from, from God's word. And they did this, he says, with a great eagerness. Not only did they listen to Paul teach, but they did so with, with a zeal, uh, a readiness, an eagerness to learn, to see what he had to say. They were open to it. He wasn't just giving them his thoughts and opinions. He was claiming to explain the scriptures. So at the very least, they were going to hear that out because of a reverence for God's word. You just see from them, they, they really valued God's word. It wasn't just for show. It wasn't just pretend like the Thessalonian Jews. 
They really had a hunger for Scripture, for the true meaning of Scripture. And so at the, at the least, they were going to hear Paul out. Here's the thing, though. Paul was showing them things from Scripture that rattled their cage. He was exposing them to truth that went against their traditional teaching. It was a big deal for them. It's like today, if you were to sit down with a Catholic and explain to them how the Pope and the entire Roman Catholic system can't be found in the Bible. When you challenge someone's long-standing beliefs or traditions like that, it doesn't usually go well. It usually ends poorly. So, so what was Paul showing these Bereans that was going so against their traditional beliefs? Well, like we said before, he was making these huge claims that not only was Jesus the Christ or the Messiah, but also that this Messiah had to die. He had to die and rise again for the forgiveness of sins before the kingdom comes. And to these Jews, that this was huge. This went against everything they learned growing up as Jews. So how did they react? How did these noble-minded Bereans react to this information, to these claims? Did they respond in anger and jealousy like the Jews in Thessalonica? Well, no. Understanding that Paul was just making these claims from the Old Testament, they had a different response. So first we saw their character. Second, we saw their craving. Third now, their conduct. Their conduct. Finishing off verse 11, they received the word with great eagerness. And then what they do? Examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They were open to the truth. They, they really valued the truth. And so when they were confronted with something they didn't know, they just had to find out for themselves if this was true or not. That was the response. And so they examined, not Paul's words, but they examined scripture. They went back to the word to see if this was true. This word for examine means to question, to study carefully. It's used in a legal setting where you would cross-examine or you would investigate. You'd even interrogate a defendant. These Bereans were, they were taking scripture to task in a good way, just pouring into it, investigating it, even interrogating it, just asking, what's true? Is this true? Is what Paul is saying true? They had to know, and they went back to the book to find out. And here's a huge difference between these Bereans and the Thessalonians. He says they did this, how often? Daily. Daily. That's a big difference. Remember Paul, when he showed up in Thessalonica, he reasoned with the Jews over a period of three Sabbaths. And why is that? I mean, why weren't they coming back every day to hear more? You sense this, this idea that they didn't really care. They weren't that interested. Yeah, Paul, that's kind of interesting. We'll hear more next, next week. We'll wait a week and hear you again. But these Bereans, they're so different. They had such a thirst for the truth. They had such a hunger that they said, we can't wait till next Sabbath. We're coming back tomorrow and the next day and the next day to find out. And we're going to study with you. We're, we're going to find out if this is true or not. You see the difference? This hunger and thirst for Scripture to see if it was true. And so what's the result of all this? Verse 12. 
Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. So they believed that, and that's huge, actually. Most people, and I think we know it, we are most people, are so prideful that if, if you ever convince them that they're wrong, they're, they will not admit it, and they won't change. They would rather continue in error than admit that they've gotten it wrong for so many years. But these Bereans, in, in true humility, essentially admitted that, that, yes, Paul was right, and their previous understanding of the Messiah was wrong. And for these Jews, that really was a huge admission. The Messiah did have to die. He did have to rise again. And Jesus was that Messiah. To them, it was clear from the Old Testament. So they had to honor God. They had to honor the truth by believing. And so like I said before, this is why we are Berean Bible Church. Our primary name follows after these ancient Bereans who prove themselves superior in character by embracing the word of God, by searching the scriptures themselves, and by clinging to the truth. And Luke, in, in writing the, this book of Acts, he includes this episode and purposefully he puts forward these Bereans as examples worthy to be followed. And not just for us, but really for all believers. But especially for us. If our name is to identify us, if, if these people are our namesake, then of all people, we should be known for this. Right? Of all people, we should be characterized by the same principle of, of submitting everything to God's word. Taking it back to the word. Taking it back to the book. As a church, we should be those who continually search the scriptures to find God's truth and then live by it, as the Bereans did. It wasn't just a mental exercise for them. It, it changed their lives. So that is what it means for us to be called Bereans. So how about you? Are you more like the Bereans or more like the Thessalonians? If you were to hear something from the pulpit that you didn't like, that maybe rubbed you the wrong way. Would you be quick to get angry? Quick to complain? Or quick to go home and, and search the scriptures yourself to see in humility if maybe there's something more you need to learn? Maybe there's something you're not seeing. How would you respond? And in general, are you one who searches the scriptures? And what does your time in the word look like? Are you a student of the Word, or are you, do you read the Bible like you read the newspaper? You know, browse through for about ten minutes, then you put it down, and you don't think about it for the rest of the day. How do you, how do you approach the Word? You need to share the same conduct as, as these Bereans, that they were students of the Word. They couldn't get enough of it. You need to share their conduct. You need to also share their attitude, their approach towards Scripture. It says they received it with, with an eagerness. They had this passion for the truth because they knew how important it was to their daily lives. They really got it. It's not just a tradition. It's not just something we check off the list. Did you read your Bible today? Yeah. They, they knew it was so much more than that. And so they, they really valued it. But for many Christians, they're, they're quick to consume a sermon on Sunday, but then never give it a second thought. Many today, they, they just don't care about really receiving the truth. 
Yeah, they, if you press them, they really just don't care. You know, yeah, they'll, they'll sit through the Sunday sermon because that's what good Christians do. But by lunchtime, the, the word that they've heard, mostly irrelevant to them. It's mostly forgotten. So is this you? Consider your attitude toward the word. And if it is you, hey, change. And ask God to really build in you this desire for his word where you can't get enough. Learn from these Bereans who love the word so much they couldn't let a day pass without being in it because they got it. Daily they were people of the book. It transformed their lives. God wants the same to be true of us. Corporately and even individually, Berean Bible Church. Well, we need to move on to our second name now, the second part of our name. First, that was Berean. Now, let's move on to Bible. Secondly, Berean Bible Church. If anyone asks, you can say, well, the Bible is our middle name. Whereas our first name pertains more to the action we should be characterized by, namely searching or studying, our second name pertains more to the object of that action, namely, obviously, the Bible. We are Berean Bible Church, not Berean Koran Church, Berean Vitas Church, Berean Book of Mormon Church. You get the picture. We're Berean Bible Church. And so the Bible is our sole focus. Well, why is that? I mean, what's so special about the Bible that it should be in our name? Well, we can't do a full-fledged bibliology course right now. Someday we will. Not right now. Instead, I just want to focus in on one thing, one aspect of the Bible that sets it apart and that marks it off as truly special, and that is the inspiration of Scripture. The inspiration of Scripture. Now, the reason we are Breen Bible Church is because the Bible is the inspired word of God. Inspired. Uh, what does that mean? You, you might be wondering. I, I don't really know exactly what it means for the Bible to be inspired. Well, when we say that the Bible is inspired, we're speaking of the Bible's divine origin. Now, the Bible it didn't float down out of heaven bound and complete to us. We know that. It was written by men, as all books are written. However, the inspiration of Scripture explains the divine origin of this book, which was penned by human authors. As these men wrote Scripture, the Holy Spirit supernaturally influenced, or we could say superintended them, such that even though they were writing according to their own styles and personalities, the result was God's Word. God worked in them and through them such that their final product was God's intended message to mankind. Authoritative, trustworthy, inerrant. So you, you have the divine element through God the Spirit who works in and through these people to make sure that they say exactly what God wants to say. And then you have the human element with its different styles, vocabularies. But the result is the unique written word of God. And that's it. It's, it truly is the word of of God. There's two passages in Scripture that are helpful in attesting to this inspiration. Let, let's quickly look at them. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Start here. 2 Peter chapter 1. Here Peter is talking about how he was an eyewitness to the transfiguration. And talk about an amazing experience, just personal experience. But he's saying that more significant than that, more telling than that, is what he calls the more sure prophetic word of God. In other words, he's saying that scripture, it's, it's so true 
And so sure that even Trump's personal experience. So clearly he had a high view of scripture. Let's read though verses 20 and 21. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Here at the end of verse 21, we see why Scripture is so much more powerful and important than experience. Experiences can be false. But the prophetic word comes from God's own mouth. And this is why the Bible is so significant. It's a book, yes, but it's a book written by men who were moved by the Holy Spirit and then consequently spoke from God. The Bible is then God's word. When you read the Book of Mormon, you're reading Joseph Smith. When you read the Bible, you're not reading Moses or Paul or David or John. Ultimately, you're reading God. That's the difference. That's why the Bible is so important, and that's why we are Berean Bible Church. Men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. There's one more verse that we need to look at, 2 Timothy chapter 3. So turn there, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy 3 is similar to 2 Peter 1, but it gives us a more technical or direct understanding of inspiration. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Here Paul says that all scripture is inspired by God. Some of you may be familiar with this. But the word inspired literally means God-breathed. God-breathed. Now, actually, I'm not one to really throw out a lot of Greek terms too much. However, this is one instance where it does help. Theopneustos is the word. It's one word. Theo, the beginning, means God. And the second half, neustos, it's derived from pneuma, which means spirit or wind or, or breath. And so literally, it's God-breathed or from, from the breath, from the mouth of God. That's what it means what we mean when we say inspired. It's, it's from God's own mouth. And it says here, all scripture is inspired. Not, not some of it, not the first half or the second half. All of it is God-breathed. Now primarily, Paul is referring to the Old Testament scriptures in this verse, but it's exceedingly clear that God was expanding this category of scripture in the first century to include the New Testament writings. In fact, in 2 Peter, what the verse we just read, in, verse, in chapter 3, Peter calls Paul's writings scripture. He equates them with Old Testament scripture. Anyway, all of it is God-breathed. And 2 Timothy 3 also goes on to show us why the Bible is so important for our Christian lives. It's not an irrelevant book. It really isn't. It's not an irrelevant book to you. I have several books on my shelf that would be, for probably most of you, irrelevant. I mean, I actually have a book that, that the title is 
1,001 chess openings. That's, it's pretty sad, I know. But for most of you, that's irrelevant. Actually, I haven't read it, thankfully. I'm not that nerdy. But 1,001 chess openings. To most of you, that's an irrelevant book. Or maybe my old from college computer science programming books. For most of you, you know, if you need a, a paperweight, sure. Otherwise, mostly irrelevant. The Bible's not that way. This is God's message to, to all of mankind, to all of you. And he says it's, it's therefore profitable for everyone. It's profitable first for teaching. We need instruction. We need God's teaching, his, his instruction to us. But don't tell me what you think. And don't tell me your opinion. Tell me God's. If God is silent on a matter, okay, sure, tell me what you think. That's fine. But otherwise, I want to know what God has to say about something. I want God's instruction, and that comes from the Bible. This is why I'm up here preaching from this book and not my personal experiences or current events. This is why. It's profitable for teaching. It's also profitable for reproof and correction. God's not only concerned with instructing your mind, but he also wants to direct your life, how you live. He wants you to follow him, turn away from sin, and be like his son Christ in this life. But oftentimes we don't do this. We fall short. We stray from the path. Well, scripture is profitable and useful for, he says, reproving us and for correcting us, for getting us back on the path of following Jesus. We all stumble at times, but the word is our guide to get us back on the path to following the Lord. We need God's word in our lives daily to keep us following him. I mean, just ask yourself, are you straying? Are you struggling right now with sin or in the faith? I would place uh, you know, everything I have on the, on the bet that you're probably not in the word. You're probably not being saturated with the word nearly as much as you should be. It's not rocket science. It's the word is profitable for reproof and correction. And then lastly, it's also profitable for, he says, training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All of us. God wants all of us to, to be like him, to, to walk in righteousness. And the Bible leads us there. It shows us how to get there. If, if you're simply faithful to read, but then also to meditate and apply scripture to your life, You'll change. You will be transformed. You will get there. It has everything you need to be equipped and ready for every good work. Not not just a few good works, not just the best good works. Everything. Everything God wants you to do for him. You find that equipping in scripture. So this is, in short, the sufficiency of scripture. And so what else do we need? Why do I need someone else's philosophy when I have God's? Or why do we need someone else's solutions to life's problems when I have God's? Now, obviously, look, I'm not going to learn calculus from the Bible. You guys get the point. But everything I need to live before God, to please God, to honor God, everything he wants of you and me, we find in Scripture. Parents, do you want to know how to be better parents? Do you want to know how to raise godly children? Do you want to know how to honor God in your parenting? Of course you do. Then where are you looking? To whom are you turning? To the world's thoughts or to God's? 
Husbands, wives, same question. Do you want to bear marriage? Do you want to honor God in your marriage? Then where are you looking? To whom are you turning? Are you taking the world's advice or God's? So just go down the list in your life. This is the importance of the Bible in your life. Both individually and corporately, we need scripture. Just a couple verses later in 2 Timothy 4.2, we see the command to preach the word in season and out of season, which also means always. The church should be characterized by a commitment to the word or to God's teaching. Corporally, also individually, we need the word in our individual Christian lives. Christ himself taught that if you want to be fruitful in life, I assume, if you're a believer, you, you want to be fruitful for God. He says if, if you want to be fruitful, if you want to truly please God in this life, here's the key, John 15. You need to abide in Jesus, and Jesus needs to abide in you. Well, what does that mean, though? That sounds kind of mystical. Like, I don't really understand that. How do, you, how do I abide in Jesus? Well, he gives that answer in, there in John 15. He says the way you have an abiding relationship with the Lord is by letting his words abide in you. That's, that's the key. That, that's the catalyst to, to it all. You have to be filled, saturated with the word, letting it control you. Not just reading the Bible like you read a news article. It really is dwelling in you, abiding in you. That's what it means to dwell in and therefore controlling you. This is what you need to be known for individually, and this is what we need to be known for corporately. So again, this is why we are Berean Bible Church. It's how we are. It's how we always will be. We're focused on the Word, and we always will be. One last point, though. Don't confuse this with Bible worship, or some call bibliolatry, like Bible idolatry. And we don't worship the Bible. I don't worship this book. No, this is only a means. It's a gateway to taking me to, to God and to the Savior and to the Spirit. This is our means of knowing, understanding, seeing, worshiping God. So we worship the divine author of this book. This book gets us to him. So let's not confuse the two. Well, lastly, we have church. Let's move on to our third, final part of our name, church. We're Breen Bible Church. So significantly... We're a church. It's a, obviously a huge part of our identity. The problem, though, it sounds simple enough. Okay, we're a church. We should be done, but not so fast. The word church has lost a lot of its meaning today. It seems that just about any group can get together and call themselves a church. For instance, probably the best example is Scientology. Or should I say the Church of Scientology, its official name. And Scientology has to be the weirdest and also most dangerous and subversive movements to call itself a church. It's really not a church. There's nothing about it is like a church. Rather, it's a cultish business scheme. And this is true. They adopted the name church in the 50s so that they could be considered a tax-exempt nonprofit organization. So I guess it's pretty smart if you're trying to make money. But the fact that organizations like Scientology can get away with labeling themselves as a church, it really waters down the meaning of the word church. And it begs the question for us then, what really is a church? What is the true meaning of church? Well, biblically speaking, because remember, we're bringing Bible church, 
The English word church is derived from the Greek word ekklesia. You probably heard that few churches call that, you know, ekklesia church. It just means church, church, really. But the word itself means the called out ones. The called out ones. Hence the church is a, a called out group. A group of people called out from something. In the widest sense, ecclesia can refer to any group or assembly or even a mob like Acts 19.32, the mob is called an ecclesia. But in the New Testament, ecclesia really comes to be a technical term referring to the group of called out believers in Jesus Christ. That's what it means. And keep that understanding in mind. And don't fall into the trap of associating church with the building. We know this. Church is not a building. This building burnt down tomorrow. This church would still be here because the church is the people. It is the group of called out believers in Jesus Christ. However, not any one church forms the entirety of the true church. For the church is universal in nature. In other words, the church is not bound by a single geographical location. God is calling out believers in Christ all over the world and all these true believers together form the true church, the body of Christ as the New Testament puts it. So for instance, when Jesus promised in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, he was referring to this universal group of called out believers. And that being said, this universal church finds expression in local bodies or in local geographical locations. That's why in the New Church, we, or in the New Testament, we see the Church of Jerusalem, the Church of Rome, Church of Corinth, Thessalonica, so on. There's all these local expressions of the one church, and this is God's desire for the universal church, that believers or, or called out ones would come together in the local assembly wherever they live to corporately worship. And this is the plan we see for the local church unfold in the New Testament. Now, along these lines, I just want us to ask one question. What is it really that marks off a group of believers as a local church? What is it really that that marks us off or sets us apart as a local church? That's a question we need to answer because if we're going to be Berean Bible church, then we need to be known for the right things. And so briefly, we'll see what the early church was known for. So why don't you turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We'll look at one verse that helps define or describe what the church should be about. These aren't the only important things, uh, not by any means, but they really are essential. And for our time right now, sufficient in helping us understand what marks off a church. Acts chapter 2, this is the early church. After Pentecost, the church is literally right now beginning. Peter preaches, thousands are saved, and here's what they're doing. Acts chapter 2, just read verse 42. They, these new believers... They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So here are four elements of this brand new assembly or church are clear. So what were they known for? Well, four things, he says. They were continually devoting themselves to what? Four things. One, the apostles' teaching. Two, fellowship. 
Three, breaking bread, which is a reference to communion. And then four, prayer. The church is characterized by those called out believers who, who gather frequently. And as they gather, they continually devote themselves to fellowshipping together, to listening and applying the word of God together, to remembering Christ in communion together, and then lastly, in praying together. And these elements, at the very least, again, these aren't the only, but at the least, they must be present if we or any group seeks to be identified as a church. That's why we do these things. We will always be identified by these things at the least, which is why we are Berean Bible Church. We're a church, and this is what we want to be known for. So whenever we gather as a church, you can expect either some time together in the Word or time in true fellowship or time in communion or time in prayer, one or the other. These are some of the essential marks of a healthy church. As a side note, we have mentioned in here fellowship, this true fellowship that existed amongst the early church, but fellowship really is largely misunderstood. It has this really wide meaning now where people throw around the word fellowship like it's just anything, just hanging out is fellowship. Let's go to a movie after church. Want a fellowship? Sure. It just becomes anything now. So what exactly is true fellowship? The reason I mention this is, like I mentioned earlier, tonight I'm starting a little two-part mini-series on the meaning, the nature of true fellowship. And I invite you to really be a part of that because that's something as a church we want to get right and not misuse. But that's it, Berean Bible Church. This is our name, this is our identity, largely. And we need to let these three words be like three anchors to which we are always attached so that no matter where we go, we're fixed on what matters. As we finish reflecting on these three words, I want to leave you with one parting exhortation, or really a call almost, a call to be a part of this church, Berean Bible Church. This is a local church. Here we are. So are you a part of it? How much are you a part of the body? Partaking in the fellowship and serving the body? Do you think that casual, every now and then Sunday attendance constitutes being a part of the church? I don't know. Maybe it does. What do you think? How does that sit with you? I mean, you saw the commitment, you saw the desire, you saw the drive to be with the body in that early church. They couldn't get enough of it. They couldn't not be together. Do you share that desire? I'm a desire guy. You'll come to know. I'm a desire guy. I care more about what you desire, less about what you do. Because I know at the end of the day, you're going to do what you really want to do, what you desire. That's how we operate. That's Biblical Counseling 101. So it's really about where's your heart. Do you even really desire to be a committed part of this body? Do you even really want to be here? You, know, you may miss a few Sundays. It's fine. But where's your heart? Are you trying to find ways to serve, to get plugged in, to be to get plugged in, to be more part of this body? Are you looking for ways to not simply be an attendee, a consumer, a recipient, but one who serves? who participates, who does his or her part in building up one another in love. It's what we're all called to do. Just pick a one another. There is a lot to do. Ministry calls all of us. And so I want to know, who are, who are the men, the women, who 
were ready to stand up and, and pour themselves into building this ministry. I want yourself just ask yourself this, or I want you to ask yourself this when it comes to the church. Where, where are you? Where would you classify yourself? Maybe you're on the fringe. Well, then step up and become a regular attender. Or maybe you already are a pretty regular attender. Well, then step up and become a member. Well, maybe you're a member. Well, then step up and become a servant leader. Just find where you are and just advance, grow. Take the next step forward. I'm not asking everyone to become an elder tomorrow. But let's just join together. And more than just Sunday morning attendance, to do the work that Christ entrusted all of us. You know, the work of the ministry, it's not just my job because I'm the pastor. It's all of us. We are all called to to serve the body with whatever spiritual gifts we have so that we might impact this community for the gospel. So that's what we need to be doing. So I want to exhort you, encourage you to do that. Get excited, like the early church, to be a part of this body. And so remember, for as much as we focused on our identity this morning, we can't lose sight of our mission as well. To reach the lost, to impact this community, and to, to, I want everyone in here, I want every single person to know Christ and to worship him with us. So let's remember our mission. This is what God wants from us, Berean Bible Church. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. Your word is truth. By it we are fed. By it we are sanctified. By it we come to know you and see you. We thank you for the Bible. May we be like these Bereans who love your word and can't get enough of it and searching it and knowing it, being saturated with it. Pray for all here that they would be truly filled by your word as that is the key to walking by the Spirit and to honoring you. Lord, give us greater desire for you and for your word, to know you. It really, it's a hard issue. Affect our hearts and grow us in that desire for you. And Lord, we are a church. We gather as a body of Christ, as a local expression of of your body. Help us to be a church and to be loving one another, serving one another, not just consuming, not just attending, not just partaking as a observers on the outside. Lord, help us all to be participants, actively engaged in the work of the ministry. There's so much to do. There's so many people to be reached. There's so much work to be done. Lord, we know you are building your church, but you want us to partner with you and serve you. Help us all to take that on with a great love and a desire and and a joy and a privilege to do that. Bless us, Lord, as we go forward. In your name we pray. Amen.